Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Sustainable Director podcast. My name's Ellis Hall, I'm the Head of Carbon Partnerships at FutureNet Zero and I'm the Sustainability Ambassador for the Institute of Directors North Yorkshire branch. In this sustainability series, I'm speaking with people up and down the countries to understand what's going on in the sustainability world to take tips and tricks in ways that companies and directors can become more sustainable. In this episode, I speak with Andrew Griffiths, the Director of Policy and Partnerships at PlanetMark and the Chair of the Institute of Directors National Sustainability Task Force. Andrew went to COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh and they took a lot of insight from the conference. This is the 27th COP that we've had and Andrew was on the ground collecting information which he's fed back to us in this podcast. I was really looking forward to speaking with Andrew to hear how these conventions are run and and what it's really like being there, hearing how the politicians are negotiating and these world leaders are setting new guidance for countries and for companies. I hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it with Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining me on this next episode of the IOD Sustainable Director podcast. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. No, I'm good. I mean, you can't, can't complain. It's Friday. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Got plenty to look forward to. Although it has got significantly, significantly colder at the moment. I'm looking out my window now and I can barely see anything with the amount of fog. That I mean, is, given uh, that it's on. December, we should be seeing frost. This is, this is, I still don't count this as cold yet. <laughs> I shouldn't complain, should I? No, no, no. Uh, we, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's still, I would say, unseasonably warm. Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, we know what November was like. November was incredibly warm. Yeah. In certain places, especially up here. But look, thank you for, thank you for joining today. I know you've recently done a webinar about this with Planet Mark and uh, the IOD to talk about the outcomes of COP and what COP really means. So I thought we'd we'd jump into a podcast and do it in a podcast version. And I know you're at the forefront of this, so there's no better person to kind of explain some of the things that have come out of COP. And obviously you were there. So yeah, 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 uh, yeah. That helps. It helps. It definitely uh yeah, that you gain some unique insights into the process by seeing and feeling what it's like on the ground and the experience for the delegates um, who are who are there negotiating. Um, yeah, of course. Which, yeah. I know. I know it was certainly interesting. I attended the webinar and it was very useful. Um, and I think you've kind of painted a real clear picture of of what it means for businesses. So let's kind of uncover some of those things today. But yeah. let's start right at the right at the beginning what what is cop and what you know cop 27 why 27 yeah so um 27 refers to the, the the order in the sequence there have been 27 summits now um they've been going a long time uh, the first ever one was in 1995 um and you know the various things people might not have been familiar with cop summits or might, they might not have known that they were but people are often familiar with the paris climate agreement in 2015 right that was COP21. That's that's yeah. what, where that the Paris Climate Agreement came from. Even earlier than that, the Kyoto Protocol, people may have heard about, that was in 1997. That was COP3. So the COP summits are, are something that happens every year um, and uh, is essentially the, the, United, the United Nations Convention on Climate Change and, and how we are tackling climate change. 
Um, next year, you know, last year was COP26 in Glasgow. This year was Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt. Next year, it will be in Dubai in the United uh, Arab Emirates. So that's what COP's all about. And what, why is it such a significant moment? What's so significant about it? Well, the, the reason it's particularly pertinent for directors is that this is how uh, internationally we are coordinating our response to climate change. And when um, agreements get made at an international level, they ripple down through national legislation and standards, sector-based standards, and ultimately into supply chains. And sustainability and, and climate action is quite a unique area of international legislation because it cascades down into supply chain more than anything else we've ever seen. And the reason for that is that for most big businesses, who are the ones who regulations tend to directly relate to, yeah. between 70% and 99% of their carbon footprint sits in their scope three emissions in, in, in their value chain, but particularly in their supply chain where they're buying their products and services from. So if between 70 to 99% of their emissions sit there and the regulations being placed upon them say, you must reduce your emissions, all of your emissions by 90% to achieve net zero, then they have to get their suppliers involved. They yeah. have to pass on the responsibilities and the requirements of achieving those reductions, of measuring the emissions, of setting net zero targets and coming up with net zero action plans. They have to pass these regulations onto their supply chain. Otherwise, they can't meet the regulations that are being placed upon them. And so it cascades all the way down and through. And that's why we're seeing, you know, big companies like Microsoft and Salesforce putting terms clauses into their supplier contracts saying you must set a net zero target within this period of time you must report your carbon emissions to us within this period of time you must demonstrate progress against these targets within this period of time because it's part of their strategy on how they are going to achieve net zero so that's why it's particularly relevant where a really small change of wording at an international level then ripples down in a totally different way to affect businesses in real terms. And there are really, you know, like Microsoft and Salesforce, there are very tangible examples of that happening. Tesco sent out an email to all of their suppliers, you know, uh, this was in September, 2021. So more than a year ago now. And in that email, they said, um, we need to see, uh, you need to give us your carbon footprint by the end of the year. That was three months notice. Thanks, guys. Um, we need you to set a net zero target by the end of 2022. It needs to be a science based target yeah. um, with a plan on how you're going to reduce your emissions by 50% by 2030. And we need that by the end of 2023. And it, you need to switch to a renewable energy provider now if you haven't done so already. So that's that you know we have that email that's that's the email that businesses and including small businesses could well be receiving or will have already received from their biggest clients often that's the halo brands that you're like oh yes we do business with tesco you know talk about it a lot they could be sending you an email they're likely to send you an email within the next year where they will ask you for that data and i and i think that's really important because you look at the regulation and like you say there's mandatory reporting guidelines like the streamlined and energy carbon reporting was originally brought out for companies to look at prominently their obviously their energy and not really touching the scope three at all obviously that was all 
voluntary and it still is for obviously a lot of companies but it's clear that if they want to continue to operate with these big companies so that it can help their own brand then ultimately they need to be aligning to what they're doing and when i been out to work with companies to get them to understand you know why they're really wanting to do this one of the key things is because we're wanting to meet our suppliers needs so our suppliers are asking for this and ultimately that supplier has got more control in the relationship so therefore they're going to want to do it because they need to stay in business with them so i think that these these big companies that you can name drop that you can show we're working with xyz the Amazons, the Tesco's alike, yeah. I think can have a huge impact on this within the way that they actually operate. They don't really need to do anything. They just, like you say, need to change a few, word, a few words in some of their contractual arrangements that they've got. Yeah, I, and, and th- you know, th- there's absolutely that. There, there is also definitely and distinctly a need for those larger businesses to provide support to their, particularly to their smaller suppliers, to help... Um, you know, transfer knowledge on what needs to be done, how they need to do it, give access to resources. We have a number of um, members uh, like uh, GLP, for example, where GLP are providing funding for their tenants to get their, they get um, uh, certified with Planet Mark, um, carbon footprint certified with Planet Mark. Why are GLP doing that? Because their tenants are part of their carbon footprint. How their tenants choose to use energy are part of their carbon footprint and so by providing funding they're they're enabling their their customers essentially their 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 tenants to understand their footprint understand their energy consumption and take actions to reduce it and in turn that benefits glp so you know really thinking about this as an ecosystem and as as something where you know i love the metaphor of the race to zero which is the united nations uh, backed campaign to to really drive net zero targets adoption and i love the metaphor of a race because it is a race and there are going to be winners and losers in this race like let's not you know there's opportunity here and there's risk here and people will fall fall one way or the other however critically this is a race that we will all win or we will all lose together and and it's not about who's first across the line it's about who's last across the line And so it is one where we really do need to get our arms around our suppliers, our customers, our investors, our employees, and bring everyone with us on this journey to, to, you know, take that journey to net zero together. If something's worked well for you, tell people. If something hasn't worked for you and it didn't work as you expected, tell people because you'll help others uh, avoid reinventing the wheel and speed them along their journeys, which in turn benefits you and the whole ecosystem that we're operating within. Of course. So I think in summary from that point, it's about even though you're not obligated to do this yet, it will impact you at some point within the next couple of years because these big players are starting to get their full supply chains on board. Well, they, they have to. So like by the end of next year, all listed companies, companies listed on the London Stock Exchange and financial institutions who operate in the UK, yeah. all of them have to have um, a, a net zero plan. They have to come up with a plan. This is part of the uh, UK's transition plan task force framework. And, and let's and touch on that because that's one of the outcomes from COP27. And, yeah. and we know that that was one of the major pieces of guidance that 
was released. So talk to me a bit about the Transition Plan Task Force, who they are, what they do, and you know what this guidance is all about. Yeah, of course. So so in Glasgow at COP26, Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor, made an announcement. And that announcement was, by the end of 2023, all listed companies and financial institutions in the UK are going to have to submit a net zero plan to the Financial Conduct Authority, to the FCA. This was a move by the Treasury, um, which meant they didn't have to pass a parliamentary bill. It becomes part of the FCA requirements for sort of financial due diligence with listed companies and financial institutions. So um, in the year that followed, they set up a task force who were given the mandate of producing the framework, producing the expectations. Here's what a good net zero plan looks like. And that's what was released at COP27. They released this framework and listed companies and financial institutions now have one year uh, to the end of 2023 to produce and submit a net zero plan that conforms to that framework. Now, it, with it being a net zero plan and a net zero sort of framework, that has to incorporate all of your emissions, which means it has to incorporate a plan on how you're tackling your supply chain. And it includes specific references to that. So all of those, if you are anywhere in the supply chain of a listed company, and you might not know that you are, you might work for a company who works for a company who works for a company. It's a Russian nesting doll of accountability. If you are anywhere within that supply chain, a ripple effect is going to come down through that supply chain within the next 12 months where they will be getting their acts together to demonstrate not only that they have a plan, but that they are already enacting that plan. And part of that enacting will be reaching out to their supply chain to get them on board. So how does this align to documentation and guidance that's already out there? So the task force on climate related financial disclosures and also the task force on nature related financial disclosures how does this sit in with those two yeah so they, they they built upon it so they use that as a foundation stone they 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 have a little image a graphic in in the in the framework which shows the relationship between uh the tcfd task force for climate related disclosures and then uh, another standard that's going to emerge next year early next year um from the international sustainability standards board issb yeah um and early next year, their framework, and that framework is widely expected to become the, the internationally accepted baseline of data and disclosure. Um, so they positioned the transition plan task force framework on top of that in the pyramid. So to yeah. sort of indicate that what they've done is they've taken both of these things as a baseline of expectation, and then they've added some extra requirements on top of it. And I had a conversation with um, uh, a chap called Tom at the European Commission uh, on Friday last week, and you know he he said that the EU are seeing a very is a very similar thing in that the international standards are going to act as a baseline for Europe, but they're going to build more additional requirements on top of it. Both Europe and the UK want to be seen as leaders, and so they're yeah. going to ask for more than the international baseline standard requires, which is obviously great we want to be a leader within this field but how is this gonna again do we think that this guidance and documents can be adopted by some smaller businesses like small companies with 10 employees or 20 employees is this framework aligned to what they can do yes and no like yeah. there's there are some really useful 
sets of governance documentation that are emerging that I think will be useful for businesses of all shapes and sizes. Um, the, the most significant of which I would point out would be the um, ISO net zero guidelines, uh, we'll the International Standards Organization, which we can come on to in a minute. Yeah. The UK Transition Plan Task Force Framework is a very robust framework. It's got a lot in it. Um, you know, it sets out the elements of a good plan. It sets out the key stages of transition planning, moving from your foundation to implement what, what your implementation strategy is, what your engagement strategy is going to be, engaging with your supply chain and industry and stuff. It looks at the metrics and targets you're going to use, and then it looks at the governance structures you're going to have around it. For a 10-person business, that's a lot to map out. Mm. It, it is a lot to map out. And then, you know, you know, we've there, there was a recent survey by Small Business Britain uh, where they surveyed more than a thousand small businesses specifically on sustainability. And the number one barrier preventing businesses from taking action on reducing carbon emissions was access to finance. And coming in second place was lack of time. Third place was lack of resource internally, which seems like another way of saying time. Cool. <laughs> um, so and then coming in fourth was as a business we don't understand what actions take and yeah. understanding what actions take takes time so it, it is it is a lot to expect it, it would be a lot to expect for small businesses to be able to use this framework in its entirety so instead i would recommend small businesses to, to take some initial steps the, the simple starting point is that you can't manage what you don't measure and you pro can't progress towards something you haven't set a target for. So start by understanding your carbon footprint in, in the simplest forms possible. You can measure your utility bills nice and easily, hopefully, or you yeah. can go to your landlord and ask them you know, for, for that. You can measure, if you have any vehicles, you can measure that. But, you know, that's, that's your scope one emissions. That's the fuel that you're burning yourself. You can probably get to your waste data you know, you know how much stuff is going in the bin. You could weigh that. You know um, uh, your business travel. You, you have that as part of your employee expenses. You can measure that. So look at what you can measure and get as much together as you can. And that's going to give you a really strong head start on, on, on this journey. But it's important for me, you know, coming from my side of Planet Mark and as a governance organization where we support small businesses with their sustainability and carbon reduction to, to acknowledge that there is currently a there is a ch big big challenge for small businesses in particular to meet the current frameworks for how net zero operates under the science-based targets initiative sbti because if you're a small business of 10 people and you're growing you know let's say it's going well and, and you're doubling in size to 20 people in a year which is we see many businesses um do it, reducing your emissions your absolute carbon emissions by 90 percent as is required by sbti to achieve net zero that's you know really hard if not impossible to achieve if you're growing massively and you're starting from a very small baseline where perhaps mm. you're a you're a fully remote operation you all work from home you don't really waste that much because you're quite careful about that you barely do business travel because you save money and you do most stuff online you know, where are you supposed to gain these 90% reductions? And the fact is that it's quite possible that for small businesses, a greater proportion of their emissions are what we would term as unavoidable residual emissions yeah. in comparison to a very big business. 
And so one of the outcomes from COP was an announcement from the bankers for net zero, uh, rewired earth and planet marker looking forward to getting involved as well is um, that we will work together to create an, a, a framework for net zero that works for SMEs because there currently isn't one. Um, so that, you know, I, it's worth being aware of the transition plan ta task force framework. It's worth being aware of um, how that's going to ripple through, but the requirements upon SMEs predominantly first and foremost will be measure your carbon footprint, understand it, seek ways that you can reduce it. Usually the ways that you're going to be able to reduce it will save you money at the same time um, by, you know, reducing your energy bills, reducing your waste costs, um, reducing the amount of resources you need to buy because you're reducing your waste. <laughs> Those sorts of things all you know, help directly to cost savings in the bottom line. So do that first. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think that is in principle what this task, these plans are, are, are setting out. You know, they talk yeah. about that. That foundation is about baselining your existing position and starting where you can. And, and part of that is how you're going to implement it or what are you actually going to do? What actions are you going to take? They're some of the actions that smaller businesses can do. And then again, the engagement side of things. Talk about what you're doing. Talk to other people about what they're doing to get advice from other small businesses within your area or within the business community or networks that you're part of. So although it's not directly aligned, there's definitely a lot of information that can be can be stripped out from it at the yeah. most basic level for businesses to kind of start that that transition. But and I know that just moving on from those the the transition plan there was there was also some other guidance that that came out that you you briefly touched on which was the the iso guidance for net zero so can mm. we talk a little bit about about that one yeah of course so the the significance of the iso net zero guidelines is that up until this point we've never had an end-to-end -end framework for what good looks like when it comes to achieving net zero right yeah. We've, we had SBTI and that tells you what a good target is. Is your target science aligned, yes or no? That's the simple question that SBTI set out to, to answer. But it doesn't tell you what a good net zero plan looks like. It doesn't tell you exactly what you're gonna need to have demonstrated and put in place in order to claim that you have achieved net zero. And it didn't have any wider sort of governance recommendations on how you're gonna manage that journey uh, per, per se. And that's what the ISO net zero guidelines do. So it, it's, it sets out what good looks like from a good net zero target, a good plan, um, and how you can claim to achieve net zero and also some wider governance implications as well. So some of the recommendations that sit in the guidelines and basically this document, it's not an ISO standard. It's a, it's a set of guidelines that standards are gonna be built upon, not just by ISO, but by other organizations. Yeah. Over 1,200 organizations and people from over a hundred countries were involved in developing this. They have good consensus internationally. And so standards uh, makers are going to use this as their baseline of recommendations. And we're already seeing some of the, the governance um, asks that I'm about to share with you being put written specifically into legislation, particularly in the EU, some of these. So, for instance, one that is already being written into an EU, EU law landing next year is that um, companies should align executive and board compensation with meeting interim and long-term net zero targets. And the example they give that 20% of long-term compensation plans should, you know, is the example they give for what, how you might align your executive yeah. 
compensation, you know, their 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 bonuses. Yeah. So that's that's sort of a recommendation start to have profound impacts upon directors because now you know your incentives, your payment is going to be directly linked to achieving net zero targets. You know, other recommendations are to incorporate net zero targets into core governance documentation, like your articles of association as a business. Um, appointing competent members of the organization's leadership to take responsibility for actions, emphasis upon the word competent, making sure yeah. someone is trained and understands what they need to do to deal with it. Um, disclosing shareholder voting records on climate related issues. You know, that might not be per, you know, particularly relevant for very, very small businesses, but it's certainly relevant for slightly larger, small, small or medium sized enterprises where, you know, votes are being taken by shareholders uh, as to whether or not to set a net zero target and actions to take. Um, but it's important, I guess, because they're the, you know they're the larger companies. At the end of the day, they're the ones that at present are having a larger impact. So that's why these things are um, designed for them. And honestly, it's music to my ears when you talk about some of those things, especially when you talk about putting remuneration packages aligned to goals and achievements, which are net zero related even when we've worked with smaller companies it often falls down because there's a lack of accountability or performance related bonuses aligned to this it's not part of their kpi so it's not part of their end of month or quarterly or annual targets and when companies do get a little bit busier often the first things to go are the voluntary related work things that they're actually doing. And often that has been the carbon reporting, the sustainability initiatives, the other voluntary initiatives that they've got in the company. So when you've got it at that sort of level, having large execs being rewarded based on net zero targets, you know that hopefully it'll kind of trickle down through the rest of the company. Yeah, accountability is important, and 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 incentivization. You know, it, it, it's and it, and it, you know, it's one of the things when we talk to sort of investors, uh, like you know, VC funds, and and indeed just banks, and, and where you go to for financing and loans. You know, that's one of the key questions that they will ask to assess your competence and your capability around addressing sustainability issues. There's a lot of money moving towards where banks and financial institutions are having to demonstrate that they are investing in net zero aligned projects. Mm -hmm. Now, that means that they need to invest in with organizations who can demonstrate that they are aligned with that. Mm -hmm. and so how do they assess your alignment? Well, they ask you, yes, they'll ask you what your net zero target is and what you know data you've gathered and what your carbon footprint is and things like that. But they're also going to ask, they also ask, have you aligned have you aligned sort of performance related sort of targets with this where's show us your capital expenditure plans your capex plans essentially those two things are saying show us that you're putting your money where your mouth is mm -hmm. show us that, that you are thinking about when you might switch out your petrol vehicle for an electric one in the next seven years like when are you you know Talk, tell us about your plans on how and when you're going to do that. It's those sorts of things where they, they have really tangible things that, you know, they'll, they'll also ask um, uh, for, you know, what progress that you're making against your targets and who are you working with? You know, do you have a third party verifying 
yeah. your, your targets, your plans, your carbon footprint. Um, the third party sort of verification piece is being written into EU law. It is being written into the, it's in the UK transition plan task force. It's in the ISO net zero guidelines that your, you must include details on how targets and progress will be monitored and reported and how they will be verified by a competent third party. Um, I think competent, again, like you've touched on before, is very key yeah. because there's a lot of new knowledge coming out and there's a lot to kind of keep up with. So making sure that you've got a company that you're relying to that's got all of that knowledge fresh in their minds and has been through courses or has the relevant training to be able to deliver this is key because we're going to see a lot more people popping up or businesses popping up that are, that are doing this. Um, yeah. So it's ensuring that you've got the right company that you're working with. But I think there's a lot of interesting guidance out there at the moment and i guess it's i guess it can be a bit of a, a minefield for companies can't it as to actually where should i be looking as a director of a company i'm really new to this it's not something that i'm familiar with you've touched on measuring and you've touched on setting realistic goals off the back of COP, with what has come out, what would you recommend directors do if they were starting today um, in terms of where is that guidance that they can actually access yeah. on how to do this stuff? Um, I'd recommend two resources. Well, maybe three. I'll recommend three resources. First of all, um, you can go to Planet Mark's website um, and go to our toolkits. We have a whole bunch of free available toolkits that you can download that um, refer to how do you reduce your energy consumption how do you reduce your water use how do you reduce your waste how do you set up a green team within your business to help drive and get your employees engaged and involved in the journey so there's a whole bunch of freely available toolkits that you can tap into that, that i hope will be useful to you the second resource i'll reference is uh, zerocarbonbusiness.uk um, that is something that was set up by a group called the broadway initiative which is an alliance of all of the big business associations. Institute of Directors is one, but it's also with the Chamber of Commerce, Make UK, CBI, FSB. Perfect. All of us are involved because this is an issue. Sustainability is an issue where we've come together and we've said we should not all be reinventing the wheel here. We're going to confuse the living daylights out of all of our members if we all give slightly different guidance in slightly different terminology and language. So why don't we collaborate together on this issue to create one set of best practice guidance? And just quickly on that, I think that's really key because as much as people might want to be sustainable for a competitive advantage, and although there is the race to zero, it's trying to inspire people to start doing something rather than like you've said before, actually being a race. There's no point all of these different bodies saying different things and further confusing companies when there's so much information out there. This isn't a race to be the best business or to win in business or to win at sustainability this is about getting everybody there as fast as we possibly can yeah exactly and so um you know when you when you see all of the big business associations who all have a, a you know a little bit of a competitive this with one another as you might imagine like as anyone does when they're operating in similar industry um you know when they decide to say, no, no, you know what, we're going to work together on this. That sends a powerful message about what we should be seeing at an industry level, at a sector level, in terms of collaboration to work together on this thing. So um, definitely that's that's a worthwhile resource checking out. Final resource I'll mention is SME Climate Hub. 
which is also great, something that was uh, worked on by the UK government over COP26. And there's also some great resources on there um, uh, as part of the Race to Zero uh, campaign. So, yeah, those three resources, Planet Mark's website for toolkits, free, freely available, you can get access to. And we do a lot of, you know, uh, free webinars and CPD accredited workshops on net zero and the actions you can take um, that you can check out by going to our events there. And then we also have um, uh, the zerocarbonbusiness.uk and SME Climate Hub with the three three places I'd point people to. Perfect. I mean, that's really helpful. And ultimately, this podcast is aimed at directors, directors of all sizes. But we know the larger directors will very much be aware of this. And hopefully some smaller directors that are listening that aren't aware have got some kind of key resources that they can access. But we've discussed COP and what came out of it. I've got my own opinions on COP today. I'm sure you have as well. And I know that pretty much everybody in this space does. We've had 27 of these now, of course <laughs> we have. And we've had some great targets, you know, like you said, the Paris Agreement coming out in 2015 that looks at maintaining the one point or staying under two, but with an actual target of 1.5. And it's pretty clear that the 1.5 degree target is next and gone. Yeah. But we can't talk about, I guess, COP without also aren't without talking about some of the challenges and some of the potential, you know, failings. How many more COPs do we need to make this that serious? Because one of the key things that people talk about, obviously, is fossil fuels. We know that there's a lot of climate activists out there at the moment with just stop oil extinction rebellion and the like. And this is happening internationally, but we're still not seeing a lot of movement on fossil fuel reductions within COP. Do you think that COP27 was a was a failure from that perspective? And uh, do you yes. think it's ever going to come to life? <laughs> uh, yes, I think it was a failure. Do I think it's ever going to come to life? Um, I, I, I remain um, so I remain sceptical, but hopefully yeah. stubbornly optimistic, shall we say. Um, we didn't get what we needed out of COP27. Essentially, we stood still. And that's the same as moving backwards when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, because if you don't move forwards, it's the equivalent of being on a treadmill and standing still. You Great. are moving further away from where you were trying to get. <laughs> yeah. The finish line is moving further from you, even if you're if you're not moving, you're moving backwards. And I guess the treadmill's getting faster and faster and faster, isn't it? And that's it. Yeah. The, 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 the longer we wait, the, the more delay we have. The further away the finish line gets and the faster we're going to have to sprint to cross that finish line successfully together so you know we we it's essentially pretty much when it comes to sort of the raising of ambitions and stronger wording in the final text of cop we pretty much copied and pasted the glasgow cop 26 agreement yeah. and we had to fight tooth and nail to even achieve that there was a lot of um there was some rumors the rumor mill was going wild with um you know that, that there were certain uh parties who were trying to um reduce the ambition to remove the 1.5 degree target mm. um you know to, to limit one 1.5 degrees of warming from from industrial levels and that was scary to hear that that's that's the fight we were fighting not not fighting to improve and increase ambition we were fighting to maintain ambition um there, we also failed to move, as you've mentioned, on fossil fuels. We failed to move uh, from the wording of phase down unabated coal 
yeah was the move was to phase down all fossil fuels ideally we'd want to phase out or you know to work toward phase out all fossil fuels but um we'd have accepted phase down all fossil fuels and that was something that india were pushing for europe were pushing for um we didn't get that the you know a number of big oil states pushed back pretty hard um and 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 we didn't manage to get it into the final text because cop is a process of consensus mm. at the end of the cop summit you need every single country to sign the document to demonstrate that you have achieved consensus and so it's a huge debate on individual words being scrutinized and argued about at intense levels by 197 countries <laughs> all with different interests and different agendas it's, it's remarkable that we get anything done to be honest at times to a certain extent yes um but you know they they have good systems and processes in place for how yes. how they go through this you know one of the most insightful things that i learned was one of the former cop presidents we asked him um uh what's the most important skill for a cop president to secure a successful outcome at the end of two weeks of negotiations and uh and he he shared um that christiana figueres who was the architect of the paris climate agreement she was the president of that summit um had told him that this the secret was you spend the first 12 days of the cop summit banking as much political capital as you possibly can and then in the last two days of the summit you spend every single penny of it and the way that you bank political capital in the first 12 days is that you visit as many of the delegations as possible and go to as many events as you humanly can to drop in for just two or three minutes you just drop in for two or three minutes you arrive as cop president you come in you say a few words about the great work that that this delegation are doing and how wonderful it is that they're here and that they're really uh, you know playing a critical part in this journey in this process and then you move on and you move on and you move on and you go visit as many of them as possible so in that last two days when you go around and you're saying to people look all right you guys are doing great things i came and visited you i i, I saw you mm -hmm. you know, i came to your event i need you to move i need you to come compromise and move with me to this thing i need you to agree to this please and it shows you how human the process is in many ways oh, when you learn that or it's like it's this sort of weird negotiation thing where you're making people feel special by coming and seeing them yeah and you use that as leverage to negotiate them to move their position telling someone how good they are telling someone you're really great at doing this yeah yeah no it's, and he said and he said it works like uh, you know in his year um he said that on on day two uh the russian delegation were causing headaches they were being really uh they weren't helping they were disagreeing with some really key things that they had consensus in a lot of other places on and he said the, the thing that got the russians over the line and the right the reason primary reason why the russians moved their position or one of the main reasons was that they had made the effort in the build-up to cop for the cop the cop president went and visited the russian uh government and spent time with them in russia talking to them and engaging with them and one of the things they said was you know we really respect that you came and you gave us the time and that you've taken us seriously um uh, and that was one of the key things that he felt caused them to move their position was that they had made that effort to connect with them so when you see the cop president you know there was stuff about alok sharma you know you know he's the cop president and he's flying all over the world yeah with really good reason this is this is this is how the cake gets made
this is how it gets done is that it's it's human beings working with human beings and it's a negotiation and in a negotiation you build political capital you build favors you build leverage and you build relationships um and 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 that's that's what a cop president needs to do and that i think that's the case in business generally isn't it it's about people at the end yeah. of the day talking with people understanding what they need to seeing how you can kind of compromise on some of these things because ultimately they've got their countries to protect and unfortunately if we don't move on these things some of these countries aren't even going to have countries to protect yeah which leads really nicely into one of the key things that again came out and i know that there's not a great deal of guidance on this yet i know that within the next couple of weeks they're planning on putting that transitional committee together which was agreed at cop for the loss and damage fund yeah so i know that a lot of nations have been pushing really hard for this the likes of pakistan which we've obviously seen has been a disaster this year so talk to me a little bit about that kind of loss and damage fund and what that means for developing countries or countries that are severely impacted by climate related disasters yeah so this this was what the sort of the one you know i guess quite positive thing that came out from the negotiations themselves uh, you know within the summit and it is genuinely impressive because Loss and da- this was the first year that loss and damage was ever on the agenda to be discussed at COP. It had been talked about before, but it was never on the agenda, which is a significant step. And that was largely thanks to a group of countries known as the G77 uh, that was being chaired by Pakistan this year. It's a group of developing countries who've, um, one of the things that happens as part of the negotiations is a lot, there are a number of countries who act as a block. They negotiate as a block, particularly sort of island nations negotiate yeah. as a block. Europe negotiates as a block where all of them agree things in advance that they are willing what their red lines are and not and then the european uh sort of delegates represent the whole of europe so if you get europe on board you get all of the countries within it on board so g77 got loss and damage onto the agenda which is understandable i mean pakistan played a really big role in this summit and when you think about what pakistan has experienced this year where a third of their country ended up underwater you can appreciate what, what you know what led to this right and um the the the, the what the outcome that came was that a, a loss and damage function was agreed to be created um and this is you know it was agreed to be a mechanism to support developing countries who are particularly affected by climate change and the purpose of the loss and damage fund is to rec- recognize that the countries who have omitted the most historically are not the ones who are facing the greatest damage and and and, and consequences of climate change island yeah. nations developing nations they are the ones bearing the brunt of the effects of the climate crisis countries in africa countries like pakistan who end up a third underwater island nations who have been beaten by storms that are being made you know that the the, the floods in pakistan were made something like 80 times more likely by climate change. And they weren't just caused, the floods weren't just caused by a flood. They were caused by the fact that they'd had a drought during the summer. It's the extremes of what's happening and it caused $30 billion of damage in Pakistan. So loss and damage is there to recognize that emitters basically need to pay reparations to countries who are struggling. 
um, and, and countries who are experiencing this damage to help them repair, rebuild, adapt, become resilient to future disasters. Well, I think, and you touch on that, like Pakistan, we've seen it because we know they're a big country. There's, you know, over 200 million people that live in that country. And like you say, 30 billion pounds worth of damage has happened. And they're a, they're a big, big country um, in that sense. And you did touch on some of the smaller countries. And we saw that Tuvalu Prime Minister last year gave a speech from within the water to show what was actually happening. And this other islands, I mean, this is a, a very different reference, but seeing Zac Efron, Zac Efron's obviously got his show on Netflix, the Down to Earth show. And as part of that, he travels around Australia and he goes to the Torres Strait, which is North Queensland, off Queensland. And they know that some of their islands are going to be completely underwater within the next few years. They don't really allow tourists to go. You can't really visit the islands. But these islands don't inhabit a lot of people, but they are going to be fully underwater within the next 10, 20 years if, if something doesn't happen. And, and I guess what happens then? Because we don't know about this. They don't allow tourists. You can't really find out about it. So seeing a show that Zac Efron's done of all people is quite eye-opening for a lot of people. And I think it brings it to light to show you the impact that we're actually having. So Pakistan being one country, it's all it's in the news. Not enough of it, but it is in the news. But I think touching on these shows that people will sit down in front of the TV and watch and are, and are sharing some of the impacts, I think is really, really important. And hopefully we'll see more of this in coming months and years. So although COP27 has, has been generally a failure from a lot of reasons, having this loss and damage fund is actually going to be pivotal for some of these countries, isn't it? it, it, it uh, I, 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 yes, it, it should be. It should yeah. be. We, there's a lot of detail needed. We need to know who's going to pay into it, how much they're going to pay, when they're going to pay, um, what, who will be receiving funds and how will they receive those funds and how will mm. the fund spending of those funds be governed. There's quite a lot of detail that needs to be ironed out, which, mm. will be, which they're aiming to do over the next year in the build-up to COP28. Um, they've set up a working group to to develop that plan and proposal, but it, you know there's a lot of negotiation that's going to need to take place as part of this because large countries, uh, you know, developed countries are, are you know somewhat rightly saying we need you know nations like China who under the United Nations sort of definition still count as a developing country. I know, yeah, I did say that, and and and, and that hasn't been updated, and so. They were sort of saying, well, China can't be receiving loss and damage funds when they're such a large emitter and they're a, a very rating. Yeah, they're very, a very significant nation. So they should be paying in, not receiving out. Um, and equally, you know, developed nations are saying you know, that's why the, the wording around countries particularly affected by climate change was worked in. Because, you know, is it right that loss and damage funding gets paid out to all developing nations? Possibly not, because there might be some who aren't actually experiencing that many bad effects. And we need to make sure resources are being focused and targeted towards those who are being hit hard with impacts. Uh, you know, and it is also important, you know, slightly aside from the loss and damage, but I wanted to bring one example slightly closer to home around yeah. spaces being lost. There is there is a town in Wales called Fairbourne where 
about 850 people lived there and the uh, local authority uh, as part, they they uh, were developing the sh sort of shoreline management plan and they have decided uh, in 2013 they decided that they could not afford to defend Fairbourne from the rising ocean and the the flood risk indefinitely and they've they've said that no money you know they 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 can keep going for a while longer but they've given them a long notice and they've said that by 2054 they expect that that the town will be abandoned wow they will move everyone out of the, this is in wales right mm. because of the rising tide the whole place place is built on a very low lying uh, set of a bit of salt marsh essentially it's been there for a long time it's been there for some you know 150 years or more this town this community but they're going to abandon it because the amount it would cost to build the sufficiency defenses to protect the, the houses so far surpasses the value of the property and the land. It's so much cheaper to pay to support these people to move that there's no point in defending the, the, the town from the ocean anymore. So this is going to hit closer to home. This is in Snowdonia. This is, this is coming from where an island is it's not yeah. far away at all is it and it's not far away in terms of physical distance but also in terms of years in the grand scheme of things i think that we when people talk about climate climate can be discussed over you know years of course it can it can be discussed over hundreds of years but when we look at climate generally we look at it over thousands of years and although that is not really relative to, to humans the rate at which this is changing that it is happening within our lifetime is the worrying thing and although some people might look at that and say well you know 54 is 32 years away actually in terms of climate that is a significant change well and and, and think about you know people you know when you're buying a a, a, a leasehold property right people fret if the leasehold doesn't have that much long left on the ticker if it's not a 99 year like lease left oh i couldn't possibly buy that like you know people people want to know that the leasehold is secure um you know how, how do you sell a house that has a 30 year like expiry date how do you insure it of course you know and that's and that was the reality for a lot of these these residents is that they their houses are now uninsurable yeah they can't sell them because no one wants to buy an asset that is going to decrease in value as the the longevity that it has is is called into question you know it, it, it has really substantial impacts so we really do have to think very hard and this is the point of like loss and damage funding and it's the point of mitigation and adaptation funding is that we have to think long and hard about how we're going to adapt our civilization to the impacts of, of climate change how we're going to move people away from coastlines we've built so much of our infrastructure next to oceans because it's a port, you know, think about where, think about where major cities are. Of course. Like they're all by big water sources, all of them, whether it be a large river or by the ocean. And we did that for good reason. That's where all of the resources were. That's where trade was. Of course. Um, that's where you could fish. You could gain access to fresh water. Um, it's where you could transport things through. Trade was, you know, what cities developed around. And so when you look at the flood maps of 2050, even in some low lying countries like Bangladesh, technically most of Bangladesh is under the high water line in 2050. You know, technically we nearly in the UK, 
the high water line nearly comes down. Um, uh, it sort of sweeps out a whole sort of eastern chunk. It puts Hammersmith underwater, puts Greenwich underwater. Um, now, the reality is we're going to build defences to, to deal with that in those sorts of areas because the cost of not doing so is so exorbitant. But, um, you know, this is the reality that we're facing. And so the loss and damage funding is to recognise that small island nations and developing countries cannot afford so island nations there's a statistic that on average right now um island nations are spending i think eight percent of gdp on repairing damage caused by climate effects eight percent of their gdp is costing them wow. they can't afford they can't afford that you know and and so we we do have a role to play the uk is still historically we are still the second largest emitter of all time behind the us we're still ahead of china <laughs> because we we started the party we we began this thing um, yeah it's in, it's recognizing it's recognizing the, that we are accountable for that and therefore ultimately be the ones that are are paying for it and because i think if it was your home you'd want other people to pay for it and i think that's a really great statistic that you meant that we are the second highest after the us because people look at china today and think well they're one of the largest emitters and actually the uk is only responsible for one or two percent but that's one or two percent maybe this year but look at all the previous years and the amount that we've emitted up to this point that is what's having an impact today well, and, and when you when you look at china per capita it's still per capita like per person within the country they're still one of the smallest emitters mm. <laughs> like, and, and also you have to accept the reality that most of what china's emissions are doing is producing goods that are exported you know we you, you, there's only so much we can offshore our emissions at the end of the day if we are the ones uh, who are consuming the goods, uh, we have accountability for that. And, of course we do. You know, it's not to say that the UK should, I'm not saying that the UK should be paying the whole thing, or but we have to, we have to, to play a leading role in saying, we're going to work together on this. We're going to acknowledge the role that we have played and continue to play. And we're going to help, you know, there is hope here, right? Africa didn't set up an immense network of landline telephones they never did that why because they skipped straight to mobile phones it was so much more efficient and mm -hmm. such a better technology they never did what the uk did which is install a whole network of landlines right across the country so that to this day people still sort of install a landline as default even though barely anyone uses them certainly of a younger generation right mm -hmm. but you always have the option it's never you know developing nations have the opportunity to leapfrog technological Great. advancement that we've been through okay. and we can do that with renewable energy we can do that with with sort of adaptive technologies to help them use clean energy sources help them develop sustainable manufacturing practices help them to develop sort of robust methods of sequestering and storing and sucking carbon out of the atmosphere we can help them leapfrog these things but they need support to do that in the same way as we went in and you know we did we we gave a lot of technologies in the name of development uh, but you know ultimately stripping a bunch of resources from the land at the same time so we need a different approach to this but it you know we can help them leapfrog it and there is hope in that 
Absolutely. And I think that's really important. You did. We started the conversation. We're talking about some of the guidance and how larger companies are working to help their supply chains and those smaller businesses that need that help and that resource. And effectively, it's the same analogy for countries. We need those bigger countries working with the smaller countries and the network of countries that we can help be better right from the start. Yeah. You know, there is great opportunities in some of the least developed countries in the world to leapfrog, like you've said. And I think that there's a there's a there's a big opportunity there, but things do need to start happening and we do need to move away from these nice pledges and nice targets to tangible action when we know what the right thing to do is. I'm I'm conscious that we've uh, we've had a really good conversation. It's super interesting. There's so many different avenues that we could have taken this from from now on. Um but before we finish, just giving directors a bit of insight, what would you like to kind of, is there anything that you would like to, to leave them with of stuff that they could be doing today or, or tomorrow? Yeah, of course. Um, I, I'll, I'll leave them with, with three things that I've, I'm mostly reiterating from what we've said already today. That's good. You can't manage what you don't measure. You can't progress towards something you haven't set a target for. And that many of the low hanging fruit and actions that you can take on sustainability will save you money and will directly contribute to your survival and resilience as a business. So the key thing is to get started, set a baseline, understand where you're coming from. You wouldn't manage a financial budget by creating a whole list of actions that you're going to take that you think will make a difference and then not measure the outcome. Can you imagine? It would be chaos. Like, oh, I'm going to say, I'm coming up with ways to save money in the budget. What have you done? Well, I haven't measured anything. I haven't set any targets. I've just come up with a list of things I think will save us money. Don't and know I'm, what a budget is. Don't know what a budget is. And I'm going to do them. And then I'm not going to measure any of the outcomes. And then I'm just going to assume that they've worked. <laughs> you know, that's Until insanity. I run out of money. Yeah, it's insanity. So, you know, manage your carbon like you manage your money. You know, yeah. and, and because carbon to a certain extent is money, your carbon it. emissions come from waste, carbon emissions come from using energy, carbon emissions come from using water, from, from you know, all of those different elements. It comes from spending money. And so by reducing your carbon emissions, you can reduce the amount that you are spending your money, um, which is a, a wholeheartedly good thing at the moment with the cost of living crisis. <laughs> Absolutely, which is a whole other topic. And there's definitely loads that we could have talked about in this, but I'm, I'm conscious for our listeners as well. But look, Andrew, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I know that you're on the ground with a lot of this. You're working with a lot of organizations in developing this guidance and you're a perfect person to kind of provide insight to our directors that are listening to this. So thank you very much for joining today. Well, I know this podcast was a little bit longer than the other ones that we've done, but it was so interesting hearing what Andrew had to say. And I think that we could have continued the conversation on much longer had we had the time. We touched on things right at the very start, which gave businesses and directors a few more things that they can take away. And then we delved into some more of the complexities within COP27 and some of the challenges that we still face. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please feel free to reach out and email me at ellis.hall at futurenetzero.com. Or if you've got any questions for myself or Andrew, then I know he's always willing to have a conversation with people. If you've managed to make it this far, then this will be the last podcast that we release before Christmas. 
and I just want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and we'll see you in 2023.